Good morning. As Troy mentioned, my name's Matt Tootle, and I'm one of the elders here at Safe Haven. And just starting out, we are incredibly blessed by God to have a worship team like this that puts so much effort into preparing gospel-centered worship for us. Because the reality is the gospel message for this morning started with the very first chord, the very first line, started the gospel message for this morning. So I just want to publicly say thank you to them for just laboring and leading us so often in the gospel. So this morning, we are picking back up right in the middle of our study of James. Um, We started the book of James several weeks ago in chapter 1, verse 1, and this morning we find ourselves in chapter 1, verse 13. But what we're going to do is to provide context and background and just some reminder of where we've been and to give us the lens through which we need to view this morning, we're going to read the entire first 15 verses. 
And as we do that, I want the words of the last song that we just sang. He's a good, good father. Let that just stir in, your, in the background of your mind as, as we read the text, as we study the text this morning. Let those words, the reality, the truth that God is a good father all the time. And we are loved by him. So let's start out reading James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And now we pick up in our text for this morning, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is God's word for God's people. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this morning, for the gospel message that's already been preached to us through song, through celebrating the life of a baby. Father, in your covenant with us. So we ask this morning that as we look at your word, Holy Spirit, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, enlighten our hearts, speak to us for your glory and your glory alone. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we've seen week after week so far in James, and what I want to remind us again this morning is the context, the backdrop of everything we're reading is trials. James is talking about trials. It starts out with the, to the 12 tribes and the dispersion. That's the Jewish Christians who have been dispersed because they're being persecuted. So everything we read this morning is through the lens of trials. We started out with considering it joy or count it joy when you encounter these trials of various kinds. And then we're reminded that if you lack wisdom amidst these trials, ask God. God provides that wisdom. And then a couple of weeks ago, Troy reminded us that the playing field is even. The rich, the poor, we encounter trials just alike. God's not concerned about our balance sheet, our bank statement, uh, all of what we have. He's concerned about our heart. And we equally face trials. But this morning, James transitions from talking about those trials that we face those things that come at us, 
that are for our good, for the testing of our faith, he transitions to talking about temptation, that which is designed to allure us and pull us away towards evil. And the two are very similar, trials and temptation. In fact, in this text, it comes from the same Greek root word, just one is a noun and one is a verb, but it comes from the exact same Greek root word. But again, the trials is for our testing and for our good. The temptation is to lead us towards evil. Some scholars have actually, because of that context and because of the similarity, translated this verse 13 where it says, let no one say when he is tempted. Some scholars have translated that to say, let no one when tested say I am being tempted by God. And again, I think in the context of all these verses, that fits really well. In the middle of those trials and the testing, don't say I'm being tempted by God. And just like in verse 12, just like in verse 2, where it says, count it joy when you meet trials. In verse 13, it says, when tempted. Not if. There's a certainty there. Not possible, not if. I wonder if. It will happen. We will face trials and we will face temptation. And what we need to remember is it's natural when we face these trials When we face the testing and even true temptation, it's natural and normal for us to say, why is this happening? What's going on? What's causing this? What did I do? And while we know that God allows and even ordains trials for our testing, for our good, it can be far too easy to slip down the slippery slope of believing that God is the author and creator of the temptation that comes at us. That's why in 13, let no one say, I am being tempted by God. And that concept is not new to us. That goes back to the garden. That goes back to the fall of man in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. And and when God confronts Adam about it, what's Adam's answer? The woman you gave me. So he's blaming the woman, but he's blaming God. The woman you gave me. But do we really do that? Do we really blame God? I mean, really, I I honestly can stand up here and say, I never remember an occasion where I said, God, you are tempting me to whatever. And that's because it can be so much more subtle. It, It can sound like blaming circumstances. If this wouldn't have happened, I wouldn't have. Or if this would have happened, I would have. If I were married, if I could finally just get married, I wouldn't have this struggle. If I weren't married, I wouldn't be dealing with this. Or if I was married to someone different, I wouldn't have this struggle. If I have kids, or if my kids were different, if I didn't have this diagnosis, or if I hadn't had that accident, if I didn't lose my job, or if I had a different job, if God didn't create me with these desires, I wouldn't fill in the blank. All of those, whether we admit it or not, are blaming God. Listen listen to Proverbs 19.3. A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. He blames God for his folly, for his temptation. And again, we need to be very clear. Yes, God is the author of some tests, some trials, He brings them into our life for our testing and for our good. But he is never the author of temptation. 
He never seeks to destroy our faith. I I love the way John Calvin put it in, in talking about these verses. To draw out what is hidden in our hearts. That's where he's talking about the testing, the drawing out of our heart, the revealing of our heart. To draw out what is hidden in our hearts is a far different thing from inwardly alluring our hearts by wicked lusts. That's the temptation, and it's a far different thing. That's why we're told, let no man say, or let no man think, rationalize, justify, his behavior by saying, I am being tempted by God. Why? Because God cannot and does not tempt. That phrase, cannot be tempted, literally means without temptation. God has nothing whatsoever to do with evil. He does not and cannot and never has experienced its draw, its beckoning. And he cannot and does not entice. But wait. Jesus was tempted in the desert. Yes, he was. And Jesus was fully God and fully man. And that concept is something that it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. But they exist at the same time without affecting each component. So while he is fully man, he was tempted Yet fully God never experienced that temptation or that draw. And in that, he was tempted without sin. And that's good news. So you walk into a room and your your roommate, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, says, I've got good news and I've got bad news. What do you want to hear first? How many are my bad news people? You want to hear the bad news first? All right, let's see the good news. All right, we just, did, we just confirmed a scientific study that, that took place in 2014 by Psychology Today. They did a study that says when presented with that question, just about 8 out of 10 people are going to pick bad news first. And why is that? Because the good news kind of lightens their feeling, makes them feel better. But Psychology Today says it's better if we hear the good news first and then the bad news because the bad news will then motivate us to change our behavior. Well, that's not what we're going to do this morning. Number one, because I'm a bad news first person. Number two, that's, that's how my notes are written. And number three, because what we're talking about this morning are two sides of the same coin. Good news and bad news. But we are not trying to motivate a change in behavior. In fact, the good news that we're going to get to later is made so much more beautiful and glorious and good because of the bad news that we're going to talk about first. So in verse 14 it says, But each person is tempted. Who's that talking about? Who is each person? In fact, if you're each person, raise your hand. Every hand ought to be up, because otherwise I want to talk to you afterwards and find out what's going on. Um, That's all of us. Every last one of us. And how are we tempted? When we're lured and enticed by our own desires. Listen to the words there. Our own desires. The desires we own. The ones that are deep within us. Our heart. Lured and enticed. And I like the way the NIV portrays it. It says, dragged away and enticed. You see the imagery there, dragged away? 
But, but when you first heard the word lured, what, what do you think of? What's the first thing you think of? Fishing. Fishing. Yeah, I know. And that's what I thought of. And that's good because that is the imagery portrayed here. I mean, that's really what, the word, what those words are designed to, to show us, fishing. And I, I grew up fishing. I, I really enjoy it. I grew up going to the Lake of the Ozarks in Missouri. Every summer, spring break, we'd, we'd drive down, we'd stop at Buster's Bait Shop, and that really was the name of it. Buster's Bait Shop, and we'd buy several of those styrofoam cartons of night crawlers. I'd get the Zebco rod and reel out, new bobber, head down to the dock, tie a big fat uh, night crawler on it, and just sit there and wait. And whatever came my way is what I got. I mean, it could be a, a sunfish, it could be a brim. Never really got much bigger than that. And yeah, I'm a preacher today, so that probably really means that. But, um, but no, you, you just sit there and wait. But really, the past year and a half, I, I really wanted to start to learn how to bass fish, to learn how to reel fish, to do it the right way. And what I quickly learned is that that Zebco and that Nightcrawler does not cut it. Um, number one, you have got to have a ton more rods and reels. And I never understood that. And two, two friends that, that walked me along this, kind of like my Mr. Miyagi of fishing, uh, Ray Anderson and Randy Faust are here visiting. And uh, they both quickly taught me why we had to have so many rods and reels. And that's because we got to have a whole lot of bait. Each rod and reel's got to have a different bait on it for the different circumstances where we're out there fishing. That's a, a far cry from my nightcrawler days because we've got worms, jigs, crankbait, stickbait, uh, jerky, uh, jerkbait, uh, shaky heads, all kinds of them. Nowhere near my nightcrawler days. But the one bait that I could never understand was the spinner bait. And I think we got a picture of it. Because while some of those baits really look like the real thing, really look like something a fish might eat, the worm, uh, some of the frogs, even some of the crankbait look like little bait fish, this I didn't understand. That, that does not look like fish food to me. I mean, you've got a couple of the, the shiny things. You've got uh, this stringy fluorescent stuff that looks like a Hawaiian skirt. And I'm thinking, it doesn't look like fish food. So I could never figure it out. Until Ray explained to me the principle there. The fish aren't always searching because they're hungry. They're not always biting because they're hungry. It's something called a reactionary bite. This shiny object plops down in front of them, and the fish, sometimes without thinking about it, without processing it, react and just strike. That's a picture of what's going on here in this text. With our desires when we're lured and enticed, when we're dragged away, sometimes it's just without giving it a lot of thought, a reactionary bite. We just strike. It's instinctive. And it's important to note here that that desire in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's not sin. God created us to be people who desire. There's nothing wrong with a desire for comfort, for safety, for friendship, companionship, for nice things. Nothing wrong with the desire to go out and have a good time and have fun. But it's when I'm enticed by, when I'm lured and, and forcefully dragged by my inner desires for my kingdom and my will, and I submit to those desires, outside of God's boundaries, that's when it becomes sin. 
The desire isn't sin, but giving in to it by an act of the will is what creates sin. And again, I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but what causes sin? It's when I'm lured and enticed by my own desires. And I, I'm going to try to say these next few things in as gentle of a way as possible, because I know this morning there's people from all kinds of different backgrounds, different experiences, different hurts. But I sat through my share, my fair share of counseling appointments um, in my life, being on the other side of the counselor, the, the one on the couch, from counseling as a kid because my parents were divorced, to marriage counseling, to just general counseling, trying to figure out why do I do what I do? Why, why do I struggle with what I struggle with? What's causing this within me? And in each of those sessions, the counselor wanted to talk about my dad and wanted to talk about my mom, wanted to talk about things they might have done or said that affected me, that caused me to be who I am, that we might be able to point to, to understand whatever behavior it is that we're trying to address. And I just wonder if that sounds familiar. I, I actually started calling it the Oprah and Dr. Phil effect because it just seems like there's always, we got to find something and point to something in the past. Have you ever been there where you're searching for the thing to explain why you currently struggle with what you're struggling with? And there is something in our past. There is. And it's our birth. We were all born into sin. Psalm 51.5 says it, and I love the NIV translation of this. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Period. And I don't want to rain on the parade of the beautiful baby dedication, but I knew what text was coming and I couldn't help but picture that as the little baby was up here. Yes, beautiful, but sinful. And that's us from birth. You and I are sinners and when we get dragged away and enticed by our desires, we sin. So if you're looking for something in your past to explain that current sin, that's it. You were born. And that's not to say that counseling isn't good. I know there are some who have deep-rooted hurts, even abuses, things that really do need to be talked about, processed by somebody who's gifted in that area. And this morning, we have people here at Safe Haven who are gifted in that, trained in that, and that's their passion. And they'd love to meet to talk through those things. But let's never mistake processing and healing for justifying and explaining and blaming our sin. Well, the reason I have angry outbursts is because my dad. The reason I'm over-controlling is because my mom. The reason I drink too much is because I live with a person who makes... The reason I struggle with lust is because... No, all of those episodes may have been deeply hurtful, but the reason you sin is because you're a sinner. The heart of the matter that we're trying to get at is a matter of our own individual hearts. It is deeply embedded with us. And sin, left unchecked, unrepented of, when it is fully grown, as it says here in verse 15, also translated as fully accomplished, brings forth death. That's the result of sin, period. 
There's not a softer way of saying it. And that's the bad news. And and speaking of a softer way of saying it, I know a lot of y'all know Melanie Moore. And she's up here on the front row. And she gave me permission to tell the story, but she is the sweetest, sweetest, always has a smile on her face. And she's in our community group. And and the other night we were having dinner, and she told us a story of her four-year-old who swallowed a penny. And he was breathing, and he was talking. So we knew everything was fine. She knew everything was fine. But what he kept saying in that is, Mommy, I don't want to die. Mommy, I don't want to die. And she's like, did it go down this side or this side? I don't know. I just, I don't want to die. And, you know, we're sitting here thinking, God, he's a four-year-old and he's got that concept. And then what really got us is she, she said, he said, Mommy, I don't want to end up like the squirrel. And we're like, okay, in the group, we're like, number one, this four-year-old has a concept that swallowing a penny could make him die. And number two, what in the world is the squirrel part? And so with the straightest face, just in between bites, she says, well, yeah, we were walking down the road the other day and uh, walking with the kids, and I saw this completely mauled, smashed squirrel in the road. And I said, kids, you see that squish squirrel? Well, yeah, Mommy. That's what will happen to you if you put pennies in your mouth. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And then she looked at her husband and said, did I really say that? Um, but you see what she's communicating there is the seriousness of what could happen and the truth. You really could die. And so why, why did she do that? Why did she use roadkill to explain how serious something was? Why not soft sell it and say, well, mommy doesn't want you to do this because it could be hurtful. Why not something like that? Because she is an incredibly loving tender-hearted mother that knows the damning results that could come from that and because she loves her kids. And that's what God is saying to us through James. The result of our sin, of our desires dragging us away and enticing us is death. That's not God being mean or angry at you or disappointed or a killjoy. That's him seeing that, yes, we are going to be enticed to certain things that our heart sometimes wants to say, that's okay. One more is not enough. It's okay to at least talk. Our desires may want to tell us that, you know, there might be some benefit to that. And he's saying that when those desires are conceived and sin accomplishes and sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. That's a loving father a good, good father protectively telling us the truth, making it crystal clear how big our sin is. Because if you have a small sin problem, if everything is explained by something done to you, something said to you, something outside of you, circumstances beyond your control, then you have a a need for a small Savior. And you have the need for small grace. And you will lead to small, self-centered worship. I want you to look at this quote by author Michael Williams. Knowing the cure tells you a lot about the gravity of the disease. So if I go to Britt and say, Britt, I'm just not feeling good. He says, man, take two Advil, get some rest, and you'll be fine. We know that's not very grave. I'm probably being a sissy. Go home. But... 
But if I'm talking to Britt and he immediately arranges for me to be airlifted to UAB, starts using words like stat and intubation and a bunch of other things that I just don't understand, we know that's serious. And Williams continues, in the cross, we see what was needed to cure the wound of sin. And we see to what lengths God was willing to go to cure it. If your sin problem was small, it might be cured by a book or a tithe or a mission trip or a commitment or a recommitment. But it's not small. It's inside of us. It's our desires that give birth to sin, that bring forth death, and that's a huge problem. And so if you're ever personally curious about How big is my individual sin problem? As Williams points out, you need to do nothing other than look at the cross. And I told you we talk about the bad news first, and that's it. We've talked about it. But the gospel, the good news in this passage is that even though our sin problem is big, God provided an even bigger, more scandalous, unreasonable, unfair, gracious, and merciful solution, the slaughter of his son on the cross. And after he died on the cross and experienced that separation that we deserve, Jesus Christ rose on the third day, killing death. The death that we deserve, that's the result of our sin, is dead because of Christ's work. The veil was torn. He created a way for us to boldly approach Him. And as Hebrews 4.15 states, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Goes back to Jesus, fully man, being tempted. So now He can relate to us. Now God the Father sympathizes with our weakness. He's compassionate with our temptation. He's experienced Jesus fully man, every temptation in every respect without sin. He's perfect so we don't have to be because we cannot be. And that's good because he really is the good, good father that we've sang about. One more quote, and this one by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The grace of the gospel, which is so hard for the pious to understand, confronts us with the truth and says, you are a sinner, a great, desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner that you are to God who loves you. You do not have to go on lying to yourself and others as if you were without sin. You can dare to be a sinner. What does that mean? What's it mean to dare to be a sinner? Just throw caution to the wind to just continue what I'm doing, overindulging? Absolutely not. Or as Paul has said in the past when he addresses it, may it never be. So what does it mean? It means I can kill the self-righteousness in my heart. I don't have to be right. I don't have to be win. I don't have to win. I don't have to justify and explain away and talk about, well, it's because of this and it's because of that. I can dare to be the sinner that I really am. And this passage this morning is good news. The gospel in this passage is, yes, you are a desperate sinner. I am a desperate sinner. We own our sin. It's not someone else's fault. 
Get that, it's not someone else's fault, and that's good news. Because listen to Matthew 9, 12 and 13. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So if you're righteous, if you have a small manageable sin problem, If you're not desperate, Jesus didn't come to call you. But if by God's grace you're aware of how wretched you are, if you realize how desperately you need him, like the hymn says, I need you every hour, then remember this. God doesn't tempt us. He can't tempt us. But in our temptation, in our failure, in our sin. Jesus came for us. And that's what leads to the big, selfless worship. The kind of worship that's going to motivate everything else James is going to talk to us about in the rest of this book. So now what? What's the solution? What now? Come to Jesus. Come to the Savior who came to call you. You see, a couple of chapters later in Matthew from the verse that we just read, Jesus said this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, all who are weary and worn out from trials and temptations and sin and self-righteousness. Come to me and I will give you rest. You see, you remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness? How did he counter that? Each and every occurrence, he countered it with Scripture. It is written. It is written. It was on repeat. It is written. And even when the enemy tried to twist the Scripture to further tempt him, he countered with more Scripture. So we should learn from that. Back to the fishing story. We're masters of creating that fake plastic bait in our life the things that look real, the idols that are flashy, that promise relief. But the other thing I learned about fishing is when the real bait fish are swarming the area, when they're plenty, it's a lot harder to catch them with the plastic fake fake thing. So we need to saturate our minds on Jesus. I'm not recreating the wheel. This goes right back to what Troy said a couple weeks ago. We need to get in the Word, memorize Scripture, saturate our minds with worship, feast on the real thing, the bread of life, and the fake plastic becomes a lot less desirable. And as Troy said, we need to die to the notion that spiritual disciplines are legalism. No, they lead to the source of life. So band, come on up. This morning, this room is full of desperate sinners. The main issue is where are you at with that? Are you weary of struggling and wrestling and worn out and tired? Are you at the end of your ropes of trying to prove your your own righteousness? Are you exhausted from chasing that plastic man-made idol? Is your sin ever before your eyes?
For those in this room who have trusted Christ and those who haven't, the invitation is the same. If I just described you, the invitation is the same. Come to Jesus. The communion table is open this morning, and that's for believers. That's for those who have trusted Christ. So if, if that's you, come to the table. Celebrate Christ's broken body and shed blood. His perfect and complete work for you and on your behalf. And if you are overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, your past, hurts, things said to you or done to you, please let us pray for you this morning. We would love to. Troy's going to be over here. I'll be over here. If there's just something that's resounding in your heart and you can't get that message out of your mind, even if you're the recipient of the reason I do this is because of you or the reason I do this is because of you or if you find in your heart, I I can't get over this. I'm blaming something else. The weight of owning my sin is too great. Come, let us pray for you. If you've never trusted Christ and you see the end result of your sin being death, Come, let us, there's nothing we would like more than to to pray with you and talk to you about that. There's a line in the song that we're about to sing. It says, if you tarry, if you wait around until you're better, you will never come at all. And every time we say, I've got to be better, I've got to get better, I've got to clean myself up, one more thing till I can come to Jesus We are slapping him in the face and saying, the cross is not enough. End that this morning and come. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that that's our only hope. That your work on the cross is the only thing we hope in. Holy Spirit, you're the counselor, you're the teacher. Do that work this morning. Draw hearts. Reveal those areas where we need to say the cross is enough. The cross is enough. The cross is enough. And die to our self-righteousness. Holy Spirit, draw men and women to yourself. In your name and for your glory we pray.